Hey folks, we're back again with the Retro Ride podcast. This week we have uh, Callum from Retro Power, um, old friend of uh, Retro Ride and um, man of much YouTube video um, fame, I guess, and building of awesome cars um, along with the rest of the Retro Power team. So uh, welcome Callum, he's on the other end of um, Skype, so uh, hopefully this will all go relatively smoothly. Of course it won't. It's not how things work. Um, so I, I'm going to. Um, I will get. We'll get into retro power in a little bit, and and other thoughts and things on cars and such. But um, I'm going to um, start you with a question I do like to start with, which is why cars? Why are you interested in cars? Mm, that's an interesting one. Um, it goes back a long way. I think it really goes back to my parents. Um, we grew up. Uh, I grew up from when I was born to when I was 19 when I moved out from my parents' house in a small village um, and my parents had a bit of land at the back of the house and so me and my brother used to just mess around with machinery they were my parents were reasonably um, had a reasonable disregard for safety so we were given things to play with like uh, big slasher machete type things to go and cut trees down with and that sort of thing um, and there was always lots of machinery around, mowers and that sort of thing. We had a ride. In fact, I remember that quite clearly. My brother got a, a, birth, a Christmas present, sorry, of a second-hand, fairly knackered ride-on lawnmower. And he was probably about 11, I think, um, <laughs> which he promptly took the cylinder head off and skimmed the cylinder head using, like, grinding paste on a flat piece of metal. <laughs> um, and then that kind of just <laughs> For both of us, just mucking around with, you know, we had ride on mowers, we had go-karts that we'd sort of half made ourselves. Um, we bought a Mark 1 Astra just to thrash around the field at the back, which now probably was sacrilege because it was relatively good. Um, we got a Mini, that was like an old mini-stocks race car that we just used to thrash around the fields at the back. Um, and it, it kind of graduated up from there. But I guess it came from my parents originally. And my dad's always into cars. You know, he, he's at, at, the, at this point when we were kind of, really mucking around with uh, that sort of machinery he was getting reasonably reasonably successful in the job he was in and was getting some quite nice cars and, uh, and that was kind of exciting he was into motorsport and used to take us to race meetings at Mallory and Donington which were only just down the road from where, where we lived then and where I still live now um, so I think it all grew from there and then it, it sort of graduated up to working on cars before we could even drive cars legally and then obviously as soon as we could then it just went into overdrive fantastic so you uh you mentioned your brother there who you run um retro power with uh how did that come about how did uh how did the retro power story start what what was the uh the germ of, of that kind of stuff so it kind of led on from what i was just talking about i suppose we we started mucking around with cars more and more he he's older than me he's five years older so he was kind of always ahead in that and his project started to get more advanced. So while, whilst we were still living at my parents' house, he started to build a Peugeot 205 with converted to rear-wheel drive with a Vauxhall red top in it, um, which was a pretty ambitious project at the time. He built himself a Lotus 7 um, copy completely from scratch as well. Um, well, again, whilst we were still at my parents' house, now I moved out when I was 19. He's five years older, so he must have been 23 maybe at the time. Um and then, yeah, we, we kind of just went off in our separate ways, as you do. He went to university and did, did engineering. I briefly went to university, but then dropped out. Um, 
And then he basically carried on, became an engineer. He was a process improvement engineer at a steel rolling mill um, and then moved on to a company that did rubber extrusions for the automotive industry, um, again, as a, a fairly high up engineer, essentially. Um, I went completely the opposite way, was fairly into music production and did a got a job in a hotel just to fund that, really. Um, went Worked my way up there and became duty manager and bar manager in a pretty big hotel conference centre. Um, but was always kind of drawn back to working on cars. And I just started buying and selling cars in my spare time um, as a bit of a devil boy. So it, it would just give me some money to work on my music. Um, and then it just got to the stage where one day, you know, I was making enough from buying and selling cars that I was actually earning more doing that than I was in my day job. So I decided to jack the day job in. And then I was talking to Nat one day and said, well, should we get a unit and I'll start, you know, doing more of the things we actually enjoy doing. So buying older cars, working on them a bit to make them a bit better and selling them for a bit of a profit. Um, you know, little did we know at the time that there's bugger all money in that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we'll get a little unit. And, uh, and, and we did. And, you know, initially we bought a couple of cars, spent an incredible amount of time working on them sold them for you know probably one or two thousand pound profit and probably gave us like a one pound an hour hourly rate or something um but it at least allowed us to photograph our work and put that out there to try and generate a bit of a bit of paid kind of commission work if you like um and that's where it started and and, and the, it started by just doing little repairs sill repairs welding repairs and you know that sort of thing on people's old cool cars so, so retro power is kind of well known now for um, these big, fairly extensive builds. We'll, we'll delve into those in a little bit. But what was the very first thing you could identify as a, as a retro power build? I guess like what was the first thing that was a like a full house, um, yeah, taking it apart and rebuilding it. Yeah, that 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 one's a definite easy one. Um, there's a white Ascone 400 replica um, that we did. And we we basically, early on, we got quite a name for doing Vauxhalls on Opal. And it was only really by accident. I, I had a Manta at the time we started this. Um, and, I, and my brother had had a couple before as well. And we kind of knew them quite well. So through sort of word of mouth in Manta circles, we got a, a couple of Opals to work on. We did a, a fairly simple kind of engine swap, well, as engine swaps go anyway, on a, on a Vauxhall Chevette and a Cadet. And they both got seen at a couple of shows. And I think that generated a bit of interest in Opal circles. And we were posting on an Opal forum at the time, back, back in the day when people used forums all the time, not, not just retro. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that, that, that kind of got us reasonably known in sort of amongst the Opal scene. And then this chap called Kurt came down to see us. And this was interesting because he lived in Barrow and Furnace, which is a hell of a long way away from the Midlands. And we were quite amazed that somebody would come this far to come and see us. Um, and yeah, he said, I've got this two-door Opel Ascona, which is a, it's a rare car, the two-door Ascona B. Um, and I want to turn it into the full wide-bodied um, Ascona 400, which to those who don't know, that's basically the uh, rally homologation version of the Opel Ascona. Uh, and he wanted to turn it into a replica of, that, of those wide-bodied 400s. So we did a complete uh, bare shell, bare metal build on that literally starting with a bare metal shell and ending as a turnkey there you go there's your finished car um and there was a lot of detail and you know he he was the first customer who just wanted it right wanted it done start to finish and that arguably is the car that sort of really got the ball rolling in terms of major projects because he took it to close everywhere and it was just absolutely 
getting awards across the board. Everywhere it went, it got awards. And we were amazed, you know, that we were just, we, as far as we were concerned, we just built a, put a car together the way we kind of always thought was the normal way to do it. Did you feel any pressure um, from doing that build? So you, you'd put um, done some engine swaps and um, things like that before, uh, which you know are, are are a big lump of work, but it's a different ball game to building a complete car effectively from scratch if you're you're stripping it right back. You know, there, there's whole new set of skills in there, project management, all of that kind of stuff. So, so what were your complications and pressures moving from uh, incremental upgrades to complete rebuild? there's there's a lot more involved i don't think we felt i don't think we felt the pressure to be honest to us it was it was all stuff we'd done it was just combining all of those things together in one car so i don't think we've, we we the main emotion really was excitement um and there was also the other element which we've experienced a lot since but not a lot before was the sort of stress of the customer wondering how much more it was going to cost um but obviously you know in those days i had to be honest it's this has carried on in that every project we do is trying to be better than the last one. And it makes it very hard for us to estimate the likely costs. And, and that was the case with that one. You know, we thought, oh, yeah, it'll be X amount. And then, you know, we kind of banded those sorts of numbers around. And then halfway through the project, you get to that amount. And you get so as you get further and further through, you know you want to do it right. But, you know, you're also feeling the stress. And we have great relationships with almost all of our customers, amazingly. Um, you know, it's just it's just a pleasure to work with these guys. But of course, you, because you get friendly with them, you also feel the stress. You know, when you can tell when they're worked up about how much it's all costing, and and you feel that stress. So there was a stress from that side of it, but there was never a stress um, from the point of view of whether or not we could do it or how we went about it. So off the back of doing that build were you ever tempted to actually specialize in a particular area like the i guess it kind of predated things like singer a little bit but surely there may have been a temptation to go well we know how to do these red top conversions we're learning a lot more about it the more you do of them was there ever any ever a thought to maybe specialize a bit more because you're you do approach all sorts of very different projects at this time um, yeah, it's it's never really been a conscious decision. I guess it's just our overall mindset. Yeah, I mean, we did we did end up doing quite a few red top conversions, not because we we were advertising ourselves as specialists in that field. It just tends to be that when you do one, other people see it and say, "Can you do a similar thing?" Um, but but certainly the thing that really drives us, and we've realised this more and more as the years have gone by, is is coming up with new and interesting ideas and the concept that everybody's taste in cars is different. And not, I don't just mean cosmetically. I mean, everybody's requirements in terms of how a car drives, how it feels to drive, um, you know, what it looks like and all the rest of it, the practicalities of it. Everybody's requirements are different. So, you know, no one setup suits every person. Um, and that's, that's really the sort of fundamental principle on which we come up with our project ideas now we don't, we don't just go oh yeah let's stick this engine in it because we've used it before it's a case of well this customer wants the car to drive in this fashion what's the best engine to to solve that problem um now yeah that sometimes there are sometimes the same engine keeps cropping up because it's the best solution to the problem but i wouldn't say we've ever gone out of our way to advertise ourselves in as specialists in any particular make or model Although there have been some accidental, you know, some repeat builds with red tops in or Chevy LS3s, just because that happens to have been the best solution. 
So like, how does um, a typical retro power uh, build happen? Does someone just ring you up and say, hi, guys, I want you to build this, please? Or yeah. is there word of mouth? <laughs> well, how, how does it work? <laughs> it's interesting now. Now, I mean, the thing that I find amazing and incredibly exciting now is that we are getting people emailing and ringing me now, literally saying, I want a retro power project. What do you, what do you want to build? Um, which is an, it's just an amazing position to be in, um, and Rift, you know, it's just I never I never really thought that at all. We've never planned to be where we are. We always wanted to work on cars, and we like cool cars, and we like building cool cars. Um, but we've never from the from the early days, I would have never thought in a million years we'd be building cars for you know famous people that cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, but yeah, now it literally is people ring us, and sometimes they have the car that they want, you know rebuilding restoring um but i'd say now more often than not they don't even have the car they just have an idea um and in some cases not even the idea um the mark ii jag that we're building now which is the latest one to get a, a youtube series the chap just said i want something old and interesting but built with all my own kind of twists to it and a, a more modern driving experience and brought me a load of magazine clippings of cars that he liked the look of and we just worked through it all and said well you know what smaller thing are you going to be doing with it? Do you need to keep, have people in the back of it? You know, how fast do you want it to be? And usually now the first kind of conversation back when we've had an inquiry to me, let's say it's an email to me saying, I want you to build something. Um, I usually first want to learn about the customer's history, you know, their background. What, why are they into cars? Almost like the questions you're asking me. Why, why are they into cars? What cars have they driven? What did they like about those cars? To try and piece together what kind of person they are and what things they actually enjoy and, and what how to tailor the car to what they want because it, it's it's the entire package that goes together to create something that they will enjoy and one person won't enjoy something that another person enjoys so yeah it really does just start with an email or a phone call saying i want something cool either either i don't know what that is or sometimes with the idea of what it is let's go from there I mean, it, it makes sense because uh, as a, a incredibly wise and, and no doubt handsome man once said, um, all cars come out of the factory as a compromise um, and whatever it is you want out of a car um, can be enhanced. So if you want it to go faster, you can make it go faster. If you want it to aesthetically be different, you can make it aesthetically different. If you want it to be a comfortable cruiser or a B-road blaster, that's going to be compromised from the factory but you can make it more bespoke so it's interesting your approach is effectively to tackle that question first almost before you say and what kind of car do you want you know like yeah. do you want to do you want a ford or a vox or a jaguar or whatever you kind of go you know where are you coming from and what do you want to achieve with a car so it's bespoke it's proper bespoke building right absolutely yeah i mean it's it, it, almost, the brands almost to us seem irrelevant and that's why we sometimes get criticised for putting certain engines in certain cars, but it's it's not that we're doing it intentionally to annoy people. It's just that we approach everything from a completely neutral engineering point of view. So it doesn't matter whether it's a Jaguar or a Ford. It's whether that body shell does the job we want it to do, whether that engine does the job that it, we want it to do. Um, you know, and that, that's really what it comes down to. So um, I have a question, actually, which will fit in quite nicely here from um, Simon. We've got a, a nice little chain of questions from podcast to podcast going. And um, uh, Simon Coulson, who you actually met because we were at SEMA um, together, um, uh, has the question of if someone gives you the budget to build a retro power car for yourself, what would it be? <laughs> That's an interesting one. Well, it, it's 
it, it almost ties back to another, you know, a couple of points ago talking about how do these things start. Well, I, I literally have had probably in the last month two inquiries where the people have just said, if I want you to build me a car, I want you to be excited about it. What would you build? And I'll pay you to build it as long as it's mine afterwards, <laughs> um, which again is just unbelievable, really. But but yeah, and, and one of them, I said, well, my my personal dream car is a BMW E9. Um, and yeah, sure enough, there is a guy now who was still negotiating the exact spec, but off the back of that, now wants us to build in a BMW E9. Pretty much the way I would like it, but it will be for him. Um, it, it, it's slightly more literal version of actually a question that Simon had to answer, which was because he draws his cars. Is that a way of him um, like modifying and building, satisfying that need? I mean, you get to do that, but with a literal actual car now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Somebody I mean, else's money. So. We're kind of at the point now where I guess we're picking and choosing and being quite careful about the, the the cars we take on a they have to be ones that we're really interested in and b we have to have a really good relationship with the customer and i, I have to feel that straight away i have to kind of feel that relationship and know that it's going to be a nice journey um but yeah it, it, we're not really building any cars that we don't think are amazing and, and that and really I, that's the way it has to be because how, how can you take pride in something if you're not excited about it um but that doesn't necessarily mean they're all cars i would personally dream to own um but yeah there you know going back to your question yeah a bmw e9 is my dream and the car that i'm actually trying to build between building other people's cars is an e36 uh three series coupe that i want to build as a track car with uh, with a supercharged v8 in it um nice. Which I've I've done what what everybody does. It has uh, not much time for these things. I've done all the easy bits. I've stripped it down to a shell and thrown an engine block in there and gone, yeah, the V8's in. And then realised there's about another three years of work left to do on it, which I have almost no time to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that story sounds familiar. Um, I think uh, you kind of also answered the question of of what do you drive, but I, I hesitate to say you don't drive the E36. So what what is your uh, what are your cars? What you're what you're actually driving around in? Uh, so I've got quite a few. Um, the ones that are reasonably <laughs> reasonably on the road are. I mean, I drove here today. I'm in the workshop. I drove here today in my Subaru Forester. Um, so I've got two kids. And I wanted to start doing some camping trips with them, and I wanted something a bit bigger than all the other cars we got. Um, and procrastinated as as car guys do for months about what would be the, the perfect solution and eventually settled on a subaru forester xt um which i have to say i absolutely love it's uh it's it's not like ridiculously fast but it's pretty fast it's uh, it's certainly a lot faster than it looks like it should be uh four-wheel drive so it grips like hell you can just give it death off the line it, it gets to 60 in like five point something seconds which was for a massive car with a roof rack on is amazing um <laughs> i'm really enjoying that I, I, I got a really nice one i looked around until i found one with thirty thousand miles on it, and it's it, you couldn't really pick any faults with it i don't think so i'm loving that at the minute um before that my daily which i'm still driving occasionally was a 96 honda legend um nice Good which line. i absolutely love again uh, it, it's strange these you, these are cars you're probably not expecting me to say but i've driven a lot of cars as you can imagine um, and that again, as a luxury car, considering it's front-wheel drive, which should be a massive no-no, 
it's amazing. It's the it's the best luxury car of its type that I've I've driven, and that includes. I had a seven series for a while. I had loads of Jag XJs, and I genuinely think it's a better car. Um, there's that uh, on the sort of weekends, taking it out to shows and stuff. I've got a, a seventy six um, liftback Celica. And that's that's the first time I've really ever spent any significant amount of money on a car. I think until until I got that, I think the most I ever spent on a car was probably two and a half grand. Um, so I multiplied that by ten by buying that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making that up, was, making up for lost time. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I mean, the story of that is actually revolves around retro rides because the weekender, not last year but the year before, which was that the first weekender. That was the first weekender. Yeah, so the first weekend, my wife was with me, and she saw a car, you'll probably know the owner, it was a white liftback Celica that was with all of the other kind of Jap, old-school Jap cars in that little yeah. group. That's um, Benny Reese. If you, if you ever need to find him, that's a guy called Benny Reese or Shoot All on um, Instagram. He's a legend. She saw that and said, that's awesome, I want one of those. And uh, ever since then, because she's never really enthused, I mean, she likes old cars, she likes cars in general, but uh, she'd never enthused particularly about one specific thing. So she said that, and I kept my eye out, and then I spotted one that came up for sale that just looked unbeatably good and went to see it, and, yeah, couldn't couldn't really pick a lot of fault with it. Amazing story. You know, the guy had owned it since 94, but he was only quite young. He was 18 when he bought it, um, and there's just an amazing backstory to it, and it had only done 30, 33,000 miles. It's a UK car, which is really unusual wow. as well. Most of them yeah. rusted away. So most of the ones that are good you see now are imports. Uh, so it's an original UK car. Uh, I've got the original receipt from when it was new and everything. It's just, I couldn't really get a better one. I just thought, if I don't buy this one, I'm never going to get one. So that was the first time we, and we went halves on that. So that's the first time we've ever really kind of got a properly nice car. So that's the that's the nice one. And then I've got a E30 Touring um, with a the uh, M42 B18, so that's the 318 IS engine, which they didn't originally do in a Touring, but I put one into the Touring and then put it on throttle bodies. Um, so that's, that's a nice one just for summer thrashing around. Sounds the business because it's on throttle bodies. Um, I've got a Vauxhall Royale Coupe, um, which is pretty much just original. It's starting to show the fact that I left it standing outside for ages, so it's got a bit of rust going through now. Um, but a rare, rare thing, and I'm kind of loath to get rid of it just because I know there's literally single figures of those around still. Um, what else have we got? D36. Uh, uh, one more. Oh, yeah, I've got a 92 Honda Accord, which I just, again, I kind of fancied one. My dad had one when they were new. Um, I spotted one with that looked mint, had not many miles on it. So I thought, yeah, I'll get that. Cruised around in that for a winter, got salt all over it, made it rust. And, uh, and then parked it up on my drive with all the others. <laughs> oh, there we go. It's the, uh, the circle of car ownership, right? I like this. Oh, I've used it till it's dead. Okay. That's pretty much yeah. it, yeah. And now, now I've got to the point where I always regret selling cars. And I don't, so I've, I've decided I'm not, I'm not selling any cars, which means I'm basically just collecting a load of rusty cars, which I'm never going to get back on the road, but I don't want to sell them. Oh, my God. You're going to become one of those people. Yeah, yeah, I know. Where, where it's they, they they plead with you to buy the car, and you're like, no, no, I'm going to do it up one day, and it never happens. <laughs> I've yeah. turned into that guy. <laughs> oh wow, that's, that's, you're just going to be shouting at cloud soon. It's insane. Um, so actually, we we touched on on this kind of briefly. Um, you uh, 
you have a YouTube channel, which is quite popular, and our mutual friend uh, Jason does a um, um, bunch of the video work on it. Uh, how did you decide that that was going to be kind of a next step? Like, did you start at the Gordon Murray build, which, I mean, we can obviously go into details on that, but um, there's a whole YouTube series about it, so um, it's kind of fairly well covered. But uh, w- was that the starting point of the YouTube stuff, or were you already kind of planning it? I, I already had a YouTube channel, which I created a few years before, and I've just... I'd just been kind of uploading old bits and bobs of video that I put on my phone. Um, now we've all we've kind of got on board with the whole social media thing reasonably early, but not with any sort of game plan, <laughs> as with the whole of the business. Really. Um, it was just that we wanted a way of we were photographing all our work. We thought it was pretty essential to photograph what we do, and because we're quite proud of it. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people out there who just photograph the car at the start and then at the end, and they don't really show you what's going on between, and then you kind of immediately raise your eyebrows about that and so we photographed all the stuff and then it got to the point where we wanted an easy way of sharing a photo so we started doing facebook pages. Um, and that's just made our facebook presence get massive but then that kind of moved on and i thought well what else is there well youtube started doing the odd little video on my phone just because it was a nice way to show like painted body shells and that sort of thing um and then for a while you know i've been discussing with nat saying Video is clearly the thing that's becoming massive. Now. People don't want to sit and read, you know, as, as a as a generalisation, people don't want to sit and read ream after ream of magazine anymore. They just want a quick fix, see it on video and sit, sit in front of the telly. And it's kind of the future of telly, YouTube as well, I guess. Um, so we were saying, yeah, we really ought to sort of video a reasonably in-depth uh, feature about the build of a particular car. And, and another thing that was on my mind was, you know, watching all of these kind of gas monkey type um, TV shows where, again, they just smash through it and, you know, every car's built in a fortnight or whatever. And that isn't really the, the reality of it is not that. There's a huge amount of work that goes into these things and it takes months and months and months. And it, it was almost we wanted to do something that showed the detail to make people understand how much work goes into these things and that that isn't a reality. Um, and then... Gordon Murray turned up and said, oh, can you build me an escort? And we said, well, if we're not going to do a video series about this, what are we going to do? Um, and that's that. Yeah, we, we started filming it. And we, yeah, we, I think I'd met Jason around this time anyway. And uh, we were talking to him, obviously. He, I think I met him because I saw, obviously, your Retro Rides gathering video and thought, wow, that's nicely edited and met him through because of that. And so we kind of got the same camera that Jason had so we could film everything, you know, day to day. And then he could just come along and do the interview footage and edit it all together. And, yeah, it seems to we're, – we're quite surprised. I mean, it was – I thought hopefully it would go down reasonably well. Obviously, it's a bit of a boost having Gordon Murray as the as the subject in there. Um, but, yeah, it seems to be really picking up momentum now. Yeah, and now you've picked up um, Project Utah as um, is kind of the next one you're covering, which is the Mark II build, which is uh, interesting. You, uh, I guess, you're going to carry on um, following different projects, or you got a got plans to to change and expand. I'd like to do more. It's it's very difficult. I mean, this is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. It's very difficult for us to do because I'd love to do. You know, I watch things like Project Binky. I watch guys like Colin Furs. And it's amazing watching all the little detail of how they go on. It's incredibly labor intensive to set up, you know, all of those shots and 
in the environment where we're working with 10 or 12 guys building cars and I'm literally constantly ask, answering questions, solving problems and don't have a lot, a lot of time to stop and you know, work on videos, basically. Um, so coming up with a way of producing more videos in more detail that doesn't detract from our business is something that we're really keen to try and do, but it's, it's difficult. I mean, we've, we were looking at maybe doing a Patreon account and seeing if we could get enough subscribers to actually fund having the, doing more videos so we'd get Jason or somebody else here filming more often. Um, you know, the, the, I guess the dream scenario would be we'd get to the point where we could have somebody just filming nonstop. Um, and, and video editing will stop so we can cover our, our stuff in more detail. And I know there is a demand for that, that people obviously like it. And there's always people saying, oh, we want to see less of you talking about the car and more of you actually doing the work, which I'd love to do. And I, I understand that that's what people want. It's just trying to get to the point where we can do that and it not just be costing us time and money, because ultimately we have to remember that our business is building cars, not making videos. Yeah, I, I was um, I was talking to someone a little while ago about um, TV stuff or like TV crews coming into their workshop and stuff because they'd been on some uh, TV show um, and the, the, apparently the, the TV crew just literally took over and it was more about the TV crew being there whilst they were trying to build cars. It, it was uh, it seemed um, somewhat problematic uh, and I guess um, people do need to remember. Not it wouldn't be quite so bad for for like a YouTube crew, but you are there to build the cars rather than be on the videos, as it were. Yeah. Um, but have you ever thought about doing um, TV stuff? Have you been approached on on that kind of thing? Yeah, we've been approached a lot. Um, we got we got as far as kind of initial trial filming sessions with two or three production companies. Um, but to be honest, the idea I, I was always disappointed with the ideas. You know, they always wanted to inject kind of jeopardy and competition into it um and they were obviously not car guys and and you can't you can't i don't think portray the car guy mentality unless you are which is one of the reasons i was really keen to get jason on board doing the video editing because he's a car guy um mm. and so i just didn't feel at any point that any of those approaches we got from production companies were going to go down the right avenue so it was kind of I started to shy away and not really want to communicate with them and, and so the ideas fizzled out um, I kind of would like one day for it would certainly be nice if somebody came up you know and said well we've got the funding we want to just film with you every day and obviously there are shows where that is the case but it's I can understand likewise that it's a hell of a gamble for the production company because to cover say a number of car builds start to finish they've got to be here filming all the time throughout the whole build of a car which could be 18 months two years even and to do that on the hope that it's going to work is a, a, a serious investment from the production. Yeah, that, that's a that's a lot of commitment, uh, and also, I mean, it's still a relatively niche area. You know, like there's yeah. a reason that Top Gear is quite populist in its way because it has to be if it's going to reach a big audience. Yeah. Um, whereas something like your kind of workshop is is a, is, a, is more of a niche that a lot of people are very interested in, and everybody that's interested in it would watch, but yeah two years worth of filming is quite a lot of money it's still a relative you know it's still relatively niche I'm, I'm pretty happy that youtube or a similar format is going to be the way forward and i would be happier if we were if we were involved with it you know for in in terms of the content because you know, I, can, I i'll be happy that what we think is interesting is going to be interesting to like-minded people and ultimately i just that's who i want to appeal to i'm not 
I'm not too bothered about appealing to the maximum number of people. I just want to appeal to the people who are actually interested in the stuff we do rather than trying to tailor the stuff to the, the interest of the masses. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It makes complete sense. That makes absolutely complete sense. Um, so I, we, we talked about it. So how, how was the uh, Gordon Murray um, intro? Uh, what, what was, what was that day like? Uh, like a dream. It was like it didn't happen. <laughs> it still feels like that now. The car's no longer here, and it's like, did that even happen? I'm not sure, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure it did. But yeah, it was it was bizarre. Uh, I've sort of said the story many times before, but yeah, I, I think I was away at the time, and I just got a message with a photograph of a post-it note which said Gordon Murray is coming on Monday, and that was the day I was first back in after holiday. And I thought, well, that's bit of a random message why are they just sending me a message that some some random guy is coming on monday and i thought well it can't be the gordon murray surely but yes sure enough monday came and the gordon murray just <laughs> walked in through the door and said i'm thinking about getting a martin escort built a modified one and thought you guys might be able to do it and yeah that, and the conversation went from there amazing yeah absolutely uh absolutely crazy and that's now um all handed over so uh um i'm guessing we're gonna get that final part of the video which people keep asking for yeah you, we definitely will at some point obviously that's further hampered at the moment by this whole pesky virus situation um but yes the, the last i heard he still hadn't driven it which was slightly uh it was a little disappointing i mean he, he was very full of he was full of praise you know he said he'd been all over it been showing all his mates over the christmas holiday and you know he, he's written he said oh do you want a testimonial phone when i last spoke to him. So, yeah obviously um <laughs> Uh, and, and then he, and I heard nothing more of it. And then in Classic Car magazine, about a month later, he did a he did a full page feature written by himself, which was basically just saying how good he thought the car was. Um, so yeah, I, I mean he's obviously happy. But as I say, the proof will be in in the driving of the car, which I, as, as it stands now, I don't know whether he's done that or not. Certainly, the last time I spoke to him, he hadn't. But that was probably um, maybe two months ago um but yeah the, the plan was always that we wanted to get it handed over at christmas i didn't want to inundate him with cameras and all, all of that sort of thing when we were literally handing over the car for the first time um so the plan is when he's sort of happy with it and we've heard back from him saying he's driven it and it's ace and hopefully or, or failing that if we, we get it back and do some tweaks and he has it back again uh we will organize uh, a last episode and i want that to be pretty spectacular so it's going to either be uh, him out driving on the road in it or around the track um, talking about it and yeah we'll, we'll 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 make sure it's a fitting finale but i don't know whether that will be you know i don't know the time scale at all it could be could be next year for all i know at the minute we don't we just don't know at the moment yeah no, t tell me about that yeah um, <laughs> time scales are got very interesting all of a sudden um so you do um you do a lot of uh kind of different projects on lots of different types of cars which seems to be kind of your established brand as it were um no 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 job too small um or no job too big sorry <laughs> um but uh so far what's been the hardest works that you found to do on anything like what what's been a particularly troublesome car um or or option on a car as it were um i think i think as a generalization contrary to what you probably think the original restorations back to just a standard car are probably some of the more challenging ones um it sounds odd to say that but the, the sort of engineering when we've got a blank canvas 
we're, we're reasonably confident with that. You know, we've, we've got some amazing guys here, really talented engineers, you know, lots of people, my brother and two others, really CAD proficient. You know, these days we're just we're drawing so many parts of the cars, having them CNC machine. We're basically designing and making most of the parts anyway. And that actually is relatively straightforward. It's when we're having to replicate how it was originally precisely that it actually becomes really challenging, particularly from the parts sourcing point of view. And, and actually, it's sometimes on the cars you wouldn't expect. So some of the more expensive things we've got just out of camera shot from me over here. We've got two old um, Mercedes Pagodas, 1960s SLs. And parts for those are dead easy to get. I mean, they're expensive, but you can buy everything. Um, yet when we do something like 1990s cars, we did a Fiesta RS Turbo. And the amount of time we just spend trawling forums and eBay trying to find new old stock parts, because we're obviously trying to turn out every car, really. We're trying to turn out as a new car, so we can't just put knackered old-looking parts on it. Um, so we're into either restoring those parts or sourcing replacements. And on the stuff from sort of 80s and 90s where the cars aren't valuable enough for people to have started reproducing parts, but they're old enough that the manufacturers have got rid of all the old part stocks that they had, it can get really, really challenging to get parts. So, yeah, things, just bizarre things, you know, like the RS Turbo had an under tray under the engine. You know, everybody, they just get lost and smashed within, like, weeks of owning the cars. And it took us probably the entire project duration of about 18 months of, of eBay, saved eBay searches, and then one came up, new old stock, and we went and we just drove and got it. And it was basically a case of whatever you want for it, we'll pay for it because we aren't going to get it. <laughs> I think we ended up paying like 500 quid or something for an under tray for a, for a Fiesta RS Turbo. But, it, you know, if you want the car to be new, what else can you do? I mean, we could have could have moulded one, but then we wouldn't have had a pattern to mould it from. So, it, you know, it's these, these challenges kind of come from nowhere. Whereas if we're actually just designing it ourselves, we'd have just, we'd have just said, yeah, we'll make it like this. We'll laser cut it out some aluminium. We'll fold it here, weld it there. And, yeah, that'll be amazing. But that's not how Ford did it. So that's not how we could do it. That's super interesting. It, it um the this kind of stuff is uh kind of changing. I mean, you you must have seen the change over the last um well how long have you been going? Five ten years? We've been doing uh, retro power. Yeah. So like, over the last ten years, I mean, ten years ago you weren't you know cadding up something and then three D printing it as a prototype and then maybe no. stuffing it through a CNC machine that that was, was available to the size of shops that you are like back 10 years ago, CNC machines were, you know, like very serious engineering firms. Mm. And I'm not saying you're not a very serious engineering firm, but they weren't really available to the size of, of, of sort of people that are modifying cars as it were. Um, and obviously with the 3d printing and all that kind of stuff, has that changed your approach to, to what you're doing and, and how you might tackle a, a problem? Yeah, I mean, there's, bit, there's there's sort of two sides to that. The, yes, the technology has become more available. So there are certain things at our disposal now which we wouldn't have been able to afford years ago. So we've got a 3D printer, we've got CNC plasma, which is just for putting um, parts, two-dimensional parts out of sheet metal. Um, and they're amazing to have. The, CN, the actual sort of full-size CNC machining centers for machining billet parts from aluminium or whatever, um, they are still realistically out of our reach so we still use other companies for that although we do the drawing generally speaking we do the CAD drawings for the parts and design the parts and then just get them machined elsewhere um but but the other sort of side is that we with every car we build we're very aware that we're getting closer and closer really to being a car manufacturer i mean we're 
previously we'd have just we needed a bracket or something we'd have just whittled it out of metal on a bandsaw and you know filed it and made it until we were happy with it nowadays we're kind of designing everything from such a kind of clean sheet i was actually having this conversation with somebody the other day because i've got a, a couple of projects i'm in discussions about at the minute future bookings um, and we're just in the stages of doing some design renderings for one of those cars um and it was literally you, we can do anything you know we, he was saying well what do you, what bits do you need to keep standing on the interior and I, i'm saying well nothing really we can make we can basically make anything and it and we're, I can see we're on this sort of slope where now we're probably CAD designing, you know, maybe 10% of the parts on the car that are bespoke. Um, and that's gone up hugely from, you know, a minute percentage. And I can just see it getting to the point, you know, with some of the stuff we're doing now, we're doing another car, which I can't talk about, but we're, we're, we're 3D scanning the entire car, um, CAD modeling the entire car, uh, then modifying that body shape then using that those CAD drawings to CNC machine full 100% scale books to then do composite carbon fiber panels modeled onto to basically do a full carbon fiber body that's slightly different to the original or to, to retrofit onto a standard. We basically unpick the standard metal panels and fit carbon fiber panels that we've done all that work to produce. That's and extraordinarily, um, who am I thinking of who won SEMA this year? They, oh, uh, yeah, Ring, Ring Brothers seems, seems to be their territory. And also, I guess, Singer as well. People think that um, a Singer Porsche is a nicely modified Porsche, but it's actually technically pretty much rebuilt from... It, it's a new car. It's rebuilt from the ground up, and it's a, a different shape. The roof line's different. Everything's different. But it's subtle, and you don't notice. So I'm guessing you're moving into that territory. That's super exciting. That, that's it. I mean, I what, what I can see happening is that the, each project we do, we're designing and... and making more bespoke parts and it's almost getting to the point where i can see the natural progression being that we design an entire car in cad and make every part and basically make our own car um you know that that's kind of if you imagine the where the curve is going that's where that's the direction it's going which is kind of exciting and slightly daunting as well but i mean i've talked about it with my brother a few times recently and and totally with without much um skepticism if you like we've both said we're pretty much at the point where we could design and make a car from scratch and maybe we should do that um so yeah i mean that's that's something that i'm sure will be happening in the future not yet but it's something where we feel we're com- confident enough to do at this point and then you get the uh, joys of the uh, biva type approval <laughs> hurrah yeah. no, but that's certainly something we've we've dealt with i mean gordon's car for instance is is uh is a new car. It's a it's an IVA, a fully IVA car, and is on a new registration. Uh, that's awesome. It'll be. Uh, I, I look forward to the day you uh, you start building your own car. Do you know what sort of thing you'd approach? Like, would you build? Would it? I'm assuming it would be in a retro style, or we did talk. We're doing um, later this year. We're doing an Elan um, with a sort of remodeled body, an early Elan, um, but with a speedster style body. So it's just a tiny little aero screen, no roof, slightly remodeled rear um we're doing a lot of our own mechanical components on it it's having an engine built by millington which actually it's been built been built now it's ready about a month ago it's, we've managed to get the 500th millington block casting um so it's engine number 500 and they've built a very special 2.7 liter naturally aspirated four cylinders for it which is going to be well we don't know really, but it's, it's well over 300 horsepower put it that way in a car that's going to be about 600 kilos um but yes, that, that kind of led us into this thinking of you know, what what car could we make that 
that there would be demand for um, that's not a complete one-off. And, and it, it's a bit awkward for us because it, it goes against our fundamental kind of principles. It, it almost annoys me that the, the likes of Singer and Eagle, much though their cars are absolutely amazing, they are still sort of purveying this theory of exclusivity to a car that's being produced many times, which is almost a bit of a contradiction. Um, and I almost, you know, I tend to say to people, as I said to you earlier, I, you know, every, everybody's different. I almost, I don't want to sell people the idea of what the ideal car is. I want them to sell me the idea of what the ideal car is and we just build it. So we've got to be careful because if we did do that idea, we're almost contradicting our own, uh, you know, our own morals, if you like. Um, Surely yes, there's think, um, a massive options list you could put on it. True, yeah, and that's, that would certainly be what a lot of people would do. But, yeah, what we were thinking was something, probably a car as generally would be used as a track day car um, with a some sort of really nice, sleek kind of speedster-style body. Um, sort of think the sort of guy who would buy something like a Radical or an Ariel Atom but want something that looks way, way better and can afford a lot more than that. Mm. The, people, the sort of people who buy Porsche 911 GT3s just to use every now and then to thrash around a track, but but one that wants something that looks really classic and cool and not just the same as everybody else. Looking at the kind of um, area that Noble, um, I guess, live in nowadays, like the, the modern iterations of the Noble cars tend to be... Uh, a more classic twist. I guess, I guess if you yeah. think... Imagine Morgan crossed with Noble would be probably a reasonable uh, comparison. We were thinking handmade aluminium bodywork on this, so it's got a it appeals to the people who are into kind of classic handmade, all of that kind of you know that kind of jazz, if you like. Yeah, proper yeah. engineering. Yeah, Every, people, people leather are all over the place. Engineering and handmade coachwork, but yeah. want something that's also brutally fast to thrash around the track. So it, yeah, it's basically Noble meets Morgan in that sense. Yeah. And Dean can make a tweed interior for it. I'll enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually saw I can't think who it was, but I saw somebody the other day who was doing a tweed interior in the car and they had the little Harris tweed tag on it. It looked really cool. That's lovely. Um, actually, talking of uh, uh, details um, and, and touching on, uh, 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 again, another earlier bit of the conversation, um, we met up at um, SEMA this year. Um, mm-hmm. We... You were slightly more hungover than we would necessarily expect, but um, <laughs> but the, well, actually, yeah, no, we were expecting it to be fair. Um, but um, was there anything there that really caught your eye and and you took away? Because for for me, it's always um, there's little bits of inspiration all over the place, and uh, that kind of um, that's really nice takeaway for me, but. I, I'm not in the same position as you, like where you could actually action some of these things. I, I'm just going to go, oh, that's a nice thing, and then carry on with my day. But for you, was there anything you saw there that you were like, oh, that's that's super. I, I like that. I'm going to do that. Yeah, there was probably there was there was a few specific things. A, a lot of it is just is subconscious, if you like. I, I think every time I look over that sort of car, you know, you see it shows like that. There's probably dozens of little things I see and, and kind of store mentally, but don't specifically remember. But they, I think they subconsciously come back when I'm thinking about designs later down the line. Um, it's just, it's a very inspirational place to be because the standard generally is so high. And, and it was exciting for me because we've always used some of the American kind of hot rod builders as our inspiration. So you said earlier, the Ring Brothers, 
they've been one of my biggest inspirations over the last 10 years and um roadster shop as well they, had, they didn't I, I think they had a, a stand with a couple of chassis on but, but a lot of their builds were scattered across other people's stands there and they've always been a, a huge inspiration if you go on their website they've got kind of step-by-step um, photographic coverage for all their builds and they're just mind-blowing the level of detail so just being in a place with that level of that standard of work um, in such high numbers is generally inspirational but yeah for me it was just daft little things like there was literally something two days ago uh, the, the camera here can see the car behind me there's this mercedes that we're building kaiser two. it is so it's an old w111 coupe merc um, and i'm just doing the plumbing on that so the coolant plumbing and the ac plumbing in the engine bay and a daft little thing was i noticed on a lot of the builds there they were using these Gates power grip hose clamps, which are basically, you know, where you would normally use a Jubilee clip or similar to hold a, a hose on. It's like a heat shrink tube, but really thick heat shrink that you put over the end of the tube and shrink down to hold the hose on. And it just looks insanely neat because it's just a rubber ring around the end of the hose. So it's little things like that that I was noticing. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm actually trying to get hold of some, although it would normally be easy to get hold of that sort of thing. At the moment, it's extremely difficult. But uh, it's yeah, a little bit trickier. Well, yeah, it's, it's little tiny details like that, but it's probably the things I, I generally notice. There's also, it was the first time I found a company called Resto Mod Air. We've been using a company called Vintage Air for a lot of our heater and AC systems on most of the, the sort of customized builds we're building. Um, I found another company there called Resto Mod Air, which I can't believe I'd never come across before, but their range of billet vents, um, air vents, was just amazing, um, and, and their heater units as well. So that was another another useful little take home. And sure enough, I've used a pair of their vents on Project Utah. So, so yeah, that's already two examples of details on projects that were directly as a result of me being there. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I thought it would be interesting to see what you took away from it. Cause, I mean, I've, I've sort of wandered around and and you know, I'd see you know Troy Trapanier doing something, and a lot of. Um, I've noticed the the trends of what people are doing broadly because you know I keep an eye out for that kind of thing and take a little bit of inspiration from it. But I would never have walked away because I don't have a need for it to to have look at this vent company and go, oh, that's exactly what I require. So it, it's interesting for for me to 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 see what what you would take away from it. So so that's that's good. Uh, um, what was your favorite uh, favorite ride from uh, from SEMA that you saw of of the complete cars? You know this one. You know this one. It was that. I know this uh, one. It was uh, that's. I only saw it fairly late on at the show, and I, it was outside. And the lighting outside is not particularly amazing, and it gets dusty because there's cars doing donuts in the car park everywhere. Um, so it, it, a lot of the cars outside aren't really quite as spectacular looking, just because they, you know, sometimes they're half in shadow or whatever. And I was just walking down along, and I just sort of clocked this car out the corner of my eye, and I thought, oh, that's a, a BMW E9. And then I looked again, and I was like, no, it's not. What's that? And I had to go over and ask the guy, and he was like, "Oh yeah, it's a nice Revolta." And I was like, as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, "Yeah, of course." It is. And then I was just looking around it, and you, you've seen this car as well. That every detail on it was not standard, but it was one of those cars where, at a glance, you would not know it was a modified car. And that's that's always one of the goals we try and achieve is trying to make modified cars not look modified, that make them look like they were always like that. Um, and and this the work had been achieved on this car sums that up completely it was you would not know it had a glass sunroof which was a completely bespoke roof which had been formed you know in glass custom curved to the shape of the roof um the wheels were complete one-offs that there were body mods all over it but you wouldn't know unless you had a picture of a standard one to compare it with 
Um, obviously, the running gear had a Chevy uh, LS7 in it, I think. Uh, you know, and there was just nice detail in the engine bay, but not over the top. It wasn't sort of really show off and, you know, look at this ridiculously minimal engine bay. It was just nicely executed and functional. And, and that sort of extended to the inside. It had a really classic looking interior. Um, everything you needed was there, but it didn't look overly showy. Sometimes these American hot rod builds can just push the line, in my opinion, over to being too much about super minimal show. Yeah, look how clean I've made this and maybe draw a little away from function, which is something I'm always keen with our builds to have the two hand in hand, the, the form and the function. You know, it's all very well making a car look amazing, but it's to me, it's got to drive amazing as well. And I know that's something where you're, you and I, our tastes differ a little. You, you appreciate more, I think, the cars that are just art rather than rather than necessarily something to drive as well but certainly for me uh, yeah i i um i i'd like both um i the thing is that if for me if a car's gonna drive well that's great that's a that's a lovely thing um and i like cars that go extraordinarily fast around tracks and stuff like in fact i i, I almost prefer that because it's a more pure expression of the desire to go fast um but I can also definitely appreciate cars that are built purely for an aesthetic. Um, I, I have no problem with cars that are sort of quote unquote undrivably low. Um, yeah. Although yeah. Uh, it's very rare that a car to me is undrivably low, um, <laughs> but it, it's, it, it's more um, that, that pure, it, it's kind of the pure expression of it. So like I can see where you're coming from and also obviously for your business as well, that makes complete sense as well. You want cars that are, completely usable and fulfill these needs um, and and in some ways you wouldn't necessarily be going out of your way to build a, a 1200 brake horsepower car because that's undrivable in an entirely different way um, sure. wh- whereas I, I would appreciate the purity of spirit for someone building you know ridiculous brake horsepower cars yeah um, I guess that, but, um, that kind of notion does it is very closely linked to the business and the it's kind of gone, come over. It's carried over into my personal kind of opinion as well. But it's, I guess, it really does come from the fact that we're trying to build kind of new cars for people, and you can't produce a new product for somebody and say there are things that you can't do with it. You know, a good example would be the Mercedes again behind you. It's on air ride uh, because uh, we do want to be able to drop it down low, but we also want to be able to come up high. But a random point of that is. We wanted to be able to get full lock, full steering lock on it and drop it all the way down, which is something that a lot of really lower cars can't actually do because the tyre hits the arch. So we, we actually... That's where you stretch the tyres. Slightly in work so that you could get it completely down and completely on full lock. So I didn't have to say to the guy, if you're dropping it, if you're airing it out, make sure you steer it straight ahead because to me, that's something you can't do. It's, I can't say that because that's... It just seems unprofessional, but, but that, that, that's kind of again like that's why you go to retro power, right? That that's a retro power thing. Like if if you can um, afford this level of build and get it done properly, that's what properly means in this case. So if I'm airing out a car and I've got to consider my steering lock as I do it, that's because I'm building it in my garage. Whereas um, if I have the means to come to you and get it done properly, if I go to another garage or some other place and um, they tell me, oh, when you air it out, you can't steer it. Well, then you think, well, that, that's not proper. That's that's not what you want. So it it it, it speaks well to your approach that uh, that's what you're you're aiming for is is this fully usable 
new bespoke car effectively mm, yeah, yeah going back randomly to the uh the the sort of me liking a car that uh kind of drives well as well as looking good i mean that actually links quite well back in with the, the ring brothers thing that's one of the things i've always loved about them is that they're they do have that kind of show car level of execution. It's mind-blowing. And I, I must admit, in a lot of cases of their builds, I don't really like the cosmetic choices. I don't particularly like the look of a lot of their builds. But I appreciate the level of execution. is unbelievable. And the thing I really love about them that's really has always inspired me, and I guess is, is, is one of the reasons I've said what I've just said, is that they always say also, you know, these cars are to be driven. We don't, we don't, we don't like the kind of mirrors under the cars that are show guys. We just want to give car. We want to build cars for the guys who just like doing burnouts. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's great. I mean, I, actually, uh, in in a similar uh, thing, if uh, anybody's listening to this that hasn't looked at our YouTube channel, there's um, a Chevy Blazer that we filmed at um sema that it's super clean it's all bespoke interior it's ls swapped it's rear wheel drive it's it just super super cool um and last week i saw a video of him doing an auto solo in it so yeah. it's like thrashing it around on three like it's three wheeling through a corner and i'm uh that's kind of amazing like it, it was it is a full-on show car and then he's still like using it and that's a beautiful yeah. thing i think like that I, i'm i'm fully on board with that i, I think that's also possibly a misnomer about retro rides that um, Simon and I talked about a little while ago is that much as we enjoy and appreciate cars built for pure aesthetics, like ideally everything is a fully usable car and you can drive it everywhere all the time anyway. And and that's kind of the, the ability to appreciate and enjoy that isn't necessarily separated from the knowledge that a more usable car would be somewhat better, quote unquote, um, but we still enjoy crazy sharp nose bonnets on cars that are so low you can't drive them. So yeah, I saw that video. Was it uh, was it Andy put the video? Off? I can't remember of that car that's in storage down at his place. Yeah, that's my car. That, that's yours, is it? Yeah, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I do appreciate these things as well. Strangely, but it sounds like it has no exhaust on it. It doesn't have much now, uh, and uh, and in some ways, I think that that helps when you're looking and designing cars. So that that was um, one of the things I, I definitely appreciate in part of this modern world is being uh, exposed to so much other stuff um, and being able to pick and choose from that, and then trying to find like the melting pot of what you like. Um, whereas I guess from your point of view as retro power, you you have to be a little bit more restrained, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think it's, we definitely, all the cars are different because as I say, we're, we're trying to tailor them to our customers' tastes, but there's always, there always has to be an element of retro power about it. In fact, I was saying this to the, the, the guy who was doing the renderings for me uh, in my conversation a couple of days ago, is we're designing the car for the customer, but it has to have an unmistakable retro power quality about it too, I feel. Um, mm. it's kind of like my, I feel my job is to kind of take and listen to all of the ideas that they tell me about how, what things, what details they want in terms of how it looks, uh, how it drives all the rest of it and trying to take all that information and, and, and then distill it down and create something that ticks all of those boxes, but guides it all in the right direction. Because sometimes if you literally listen to the exact things a customer tells you they want and just literally stick all of those exact facts into one car you'd end up with something absolutely horrific and so it, it's kind of about picking the, the the bits that 
you can say, yes, we did that on this car, but mold it into a package that looks amazing. It's almost basically creating a car uh, uh, that satisfies all the requirements, um, but isn't necessarily what they had exactly in their mind. They just weren't aware that it's difficult to explain, but creating. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. Create. I think um, I, there's definitely probably actually a, a, a podcast in in talking through kind of ideation and 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 the building of projects. Again, I was talking to to Simon about this, so maybe we'll get that together at some point. Do a do a little roundtable with um, people that come up with ideas for cars and people that actually complete projects as well would probably be quite useful because let's face it, we can all come up with ideas for cars all day, but um, actually completing projects is entirely a different matter. <laughs> I'm in that bracket too, and it's my own card. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, well, I think we're we're pretty much coming close to time because um, it's always uh, lovely to chat to you, and I could keep on going forever. Um, I'm going to ask you one of my little emergency questions and ask you what is the scariest car you've been in? <laughs> uh, a mini with a red top, I would say. That'll um, do it. Two hundred and I can't remember a lot. 250 horsepower, I think. Uh, yeah, that, the, the torque steer is a severe issue. <laughs> <On> a, <laughs> if you take a mini with the standard length suspension arms, which give you a, a terrible bump steer problem anyway, um, a really flexible front subframe, and then put 250 horsepower in it, I can definitely say that you've created something that generates a lot of torque steer. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely amazingly, insanely fast and and sort of fun in a scary way. But uh, yeah, if you unless you fancy putting half a half a lock of steering on continuously to keep going in a straight line, uh, I would say they're not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> there's been other cars that are scarily fast. I mean, the Quattro is probably one of the we built a had a had a lot did a lot of work on a short wheelbase Quattro. Um, you know the guy dave west uh and he yeah that that thing is seriously quick i mean there's a lot of people out there talking about you know eight nine hundred horsepower thousand horsepower whatever that's 500 and something horsepower on roger clark motorsports rolling road and it is savagely fast it's definitely the fastest car i've been in um uh, I mean, it, it spins up the wheels instantly and first, and you can basically get through the gears as pretty much as quick as you can get them. Um, and, and also, another of his cars, the Millington Powered Alpha, it's not scary at all. It's a very, very stable and remarkably easy to drive, but it, it's also extremely fast as well. I don't know if you saw that going around Goodwood at Retro Rides Weekend. Yeah, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't a messing around. Um, the uh, the uh, Chevette, um, the. Uh, uh, Grey Chevette, Chevette, Cadet. What is it? Yeah, Chevette, Chevette. Yeah. Both of those cars. Yeah. I mean, both drivers are very good as well. I mean, Alistair, who we built the Chevette for, he's. I mean, we could go on forever, but he's one of those guys who just is an absolute joy to work for, and and just no, literally NFG, shall we say? He had never even done rallying before. He just said, "Oh, I want to, I want to do some rallying. Build me a Chevette rally car," and <laughs> it's pretty much a money is no object rally car build. Absolutely perfect car, and yeah, just it's the sort of car where people they'll be scared to use it. And he's just literally taken it out there, done stage rallies in it. He came to Goodwood uh, the Retro Rides Weekender, and that was the first time he'd ever driven the car. He just jumped in it and drove it all the way to Goodwood from here. 
<laughs> that's incredible. And and he, the way he threw it around the track as well, that was nuts. He <laughs> just doesn't care. He was originally going to do his speed rallies by just driving to them. And then he said, oh, I suppose I better get a trailer because if I crash it, it might be a problem. His co-driver's never done co-driving before until they started their first rally. Um, and, yeah, they were doing, you know, running really, really high up running. in within one season, they were impressively high up on the standings in these, uh, these competitions. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's just another example of uh, a brutally fast car that we've done, to be honest. I mean, only a two-litre, but 290 horsepower. It's enough. Like this, this whole obsession with, you know, 900 plus horsepower cars, or if you're in Scandinavia, they're all over a thousand brake horsepower. Um, yeah. You know, it's fun because it's numbers and I like that kind of lunacy, but you know, you, you don't necessarily need that. You, you know, particularly if you've got an older car that's in a, in a lighter, that is a lighter chassis, like 200 brake horsepower per ton is where the fun button starts. Right. So like it's a, it's a lovely area to be in and then you can go up from there, but there comes a point when it's, um, if you're not drag racing or whatever, you're just effectively showing off your numbers almost. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, particularly with the roads we have, you know, around here and a lot of the UK tracks, I mean, not things like Silverstone, but a lot of the UK tracks are quite tight and twisty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, I mean, if you're driving an, an 800 horsepower car around a lot of UK tracks or down the, the country lanes around here it would not be my idea of fun. I'd much rather drive something with three or 400 horsepower uh, you know, at the most, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. the speed, he had a data logger on the Chevette when he was going around um, Goodwood at Retro Rise Weekender. And yeah, uh, there, there were pretty high speeds on there. I think the average over the entire lap was 98 mile an hour. <laughs> Um, with Lordy. something, it was it was pulling almost a hundred around that corner at the end of the start finish straight, um, and something like I think the peak was about one hundred and twenty something. Um, so yeah, it's it, that's still given that you know how the unforgiving the runoff is at that track. That's, yeah, that's, that's, not... that's plenty enough for me. <laughs> that, that, that's that's more than a little brave, um, foolhardy I feel. But um, he kept it on there and he kept going and he just. Didn't let up by the sound of it. That's that is absolutely superb. Well, um, unlike us, we will have to, I'm afraid, um, oh, nice let guy. up and not keep going. So, um, oh yeah, see, I know how to end podcasts. Um, so, uh, thank you very much, uh, Callum. I'm sure we will uh, speak to you again um, in the future because uh, it's always a fun time. Um, is there anything you need to make sure that people know about other than um, your YouTube channel and Instagrams? No, I don't think so. If you have a, if you have lots of money and want a cool car building, come see me. But other than that, yeah, just go about your life and don't catch coronavirus. Sounds like a good plan. Stay indoors. Um, cool. Thank you very much, uh, Callum. Um, and uh, we'll be back. Um, I'm not sure who is the next podcast, actually. So um, yeah, it will be an exciting adventure for both of us to find out who that is. Um, speak to you all soon. Bye-bye.